1: Welcome to WTS Waikato, Season 2. It's a radio show and podcast about the goings-on in our region under the new normal. I'm producer Gary Farrow. Matt Cambick's play The Sherpa and the Beekeeper, Summit on Everest, premiered at the Meteor Theatre in Hamilton. And Matt has plenty of other creative endeavours too. I met up with him for a fascinating
0: discussion. My name's Matt Cambick, and i um... I'm a writer, artist, and musician who lives in Raglan now. I came over to New Zealand in 2013 um, uh, after a career in the US in various capacities as a creative director and uh, a producer and a writer over there. Um, But now that I'm quote unquote retired, I really can get into the projects that I love wholeheartedly, spend my whole days and weeks working on them. And it's great to be here with Gary, who me, interviewed me some years ago for my novel, Everest Rising, which is was kind of a Michael Crichton type uh, genre of science fiction adventure, um, but also Everest-based. And of course, uh, just uh, the last weekend of May, I was honored to be part of a great crew that um, produced the play The Sherpa and the Beekeeper Summit on Everest, uh, the story of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay's first climbing of Choma Longma, um, the tallest mountain in the world, and in the play, which I wrote and directed, um, the first act is a recreation of Summit Day, which was May 29th, 1953, and the second two acts were An Imagined Future, where the two gentlemen get back together and kind of go through the travails of dealing with fame and fortune and the cultural kind of repercussions of all those um, of of what fell fell out of all that amazing uh, expedition
1: so you would have done a a fair amount of research to um, create uh, the play which ran at the Meteor Theatre, probably a lot more factual research went into it and historical research went into it than a lot of other plays particularly a uh, uh, a play with a cast of two yeah, yeah <laughs> and then there was a um but a lot of depth to it
0: yeah thank you uh i think obviously edmund hillary being from new zealand there's an extra layer of attention to the, the person but overall the story is a worldwide famous story and a lot of people know the main facts like how tall the mountain is and maybe the day but right away you get into a second layer of who else was on the expedition how many other expeditions tried to get to the top who were the Sherpa people and a lot of people still know a fair amount about that because there's an interest in that and uh, there's a lot of writing about that and its Everest is being climbed every year so it's revisited but when you get to the third and fourth layers you realize there was a lot of controversy after the climb some people were hell-bent, excuse the language, on finding out who actually stepped up to the very top first. Was it Hillary or Tenzing? And then when they came down off the mountain, Hillary and John Hunt, who led the expedition, were knighted immediately by the British Empire, but Tenzing Norgay Sherpa was not. So right away there was a cultural kind of thing going on. Uh, And more and more, the more you read about the characters, you find out, In one of the first books Hillary wrote about the climb, he mentioned at one point in the climb, Tenzing struggled like a fish that had been dragged up from the ocean. And that comment got out into the world, and Tenzing read it, and then he wrote a rebuttal in his own book that said, you know, Hillary wrote this, but that didn't really happen that way. Even though they were, the beauty of writing this play, they were really good-hearted gentlemen, both humble and honest and hardworking in a lot of ways but the sudden crush of fame and the sudden joining of their lives just created this crucible that I got to explore. And I think to answer your question, I really tried to make sure I anchored the whole story, including the imagined future, in facts from that history. So there was a lot of research, yeah.
1: It's fascinating to hear the way they... I I mean, it's basically their retelling of the story, isn't it? Um, Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. And uh, I think... When we are sharing a a, a anecdote or a, or a tale with people in a um informal or semi-formal situation, we're relatively fluid with it, aren't we? We don't we don't stick cold and hard to the facts. Yeah, and we yeah. need to present it in a way which is going to engage people and make them hang on to our yeah. conversation or onto our writing. Um, but we we don't we don't think about that. Um, but uh, Tenzing and Sir Edmund had to think of that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why after the first book that came out, Hillary never mentioned that comment again and began to be more and more kind of um, what's the word balanced in his portrayal of the climb because I think he did just what you said it was like just his famous comment, am I allowed to repeat that? His famous comment when he came off the mountain and he saw the first um, person after Tenzing as we knocked the bastard off, and of course that coarse language was carried out into the world as this comment, where John Hunt, the expedition member, even said, I, "I was hoping Hillary would say something more magnanimous and you know, kind of long-standing, iconic that you know the world and people learning about the climb would treasure in the future." But you know he was just being honest, and that was the beauty of it in, in some ways. But you're exactly right. He never he he realized everyone's going to be looking at this stuff, you know, like a, with a, a microscope. Everything they say and do from now on. But they didn't know that at first. So down the road, comments that they made early stayed in the in the consciousness and even grew in some ways to to for better or worse. Yeah.
1: Ed and John would have been um, aiming to scale Everest, uh, basically for their personal, um, their personal satisfaction, wouldn't they? They weren't representing the British monarchy or the British Empire, which um, the uh, the yeah the British monarchy did end up taking on as a achievement for the empire.
0: Well, the beauty of your question, Gary, is that's again in a whole area that was this gray blob in the middle, like the British were funding this climb. Mm. They wanted to make sure they got in ahead of the Swiss who were coming back the next year. There was this kind of competition, and whether, yeah, maybe it wasn't quite as um, imbued in the royalty and and the governments then, but it was there already. So in answer to your question, John Hunt, who led the expedition, they got him involved because I think it was Shipton, you may have heard uh, Bill, I forget his first name, Shipton's name. He apparently wasn't, was supposed to do the 53 expedition for the British but somebody in the upper ranks felt he wasn't going to bring the organizational power and kind of army rigor that John Hunt would bring. John Hunt came out of the army. So there was a drive and a need to get Everest for Britain you know Hillary and Tenzing may not have certainly didn't think about that as much Mm. but they were in the in the team and again the play tries to explore that and speak widely about you know who drove it and what were their reasons but one of the quotes that I read out that's read during the play that Tenzing reads out of the book is that the ambassador the New Zealand ambassador to India I believe or maybe Britain and another high-ranking official doctored the account of the play to say that both gentlemen got to the top first to diffuse anti-colonial feelings in India and Nepal so even then you know the politics political cogwheels were churning to use this event for a political cause so I've, I've kind of waxed wide on your original question but um Take it, take it from there. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's really interesting. How Siryed and Tenzing, um, they, they'd just been through this massive, harrowing experience, where they would have been through different levels of. Um, dysphoria, like climbing
0: the tallest mountain in the world. Yeah, danger, risk, death, (laughs) instant death, right at your shoulder the whole time.
1: Yeah, and then suddenly you have to put all these these words and these tales together, Um, but you're obviously not thinking about that after doing what they did.
0: No, I mean, I tried to put that into play. Hillary says, we came down, we don't know how to greet royalty or have halos or wear capes or anything we just these two guys, and all of a sudden, you know, we're being feted by on the royal palace with tens of thousands of people screaming, you know, in India, and then over to Britain, and then medals and accolades. And I think they both, to, to the beauty, beauty of both the men, is they did keep that beating heart of kind of humility and down to earthedness which. Probably saved their lives in some ways, because you can imagine, like in today's world, with the Kardashians and goofball people like that, who drink in the attention if 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 they had been personalities like that. And of course, in the '50s, those were less around. (laughs) Generally, people like that, I think. So yeah, and um, yeah, they then Hillary, of course, went back to Nepal and did wonderful, fabulous things with what Everest gave him. He returned tenfold so that that's also part of the story tensing unfortunately didn't deal with it as well uh, partially probably because he was from a more simple background but he was a smart guy he did fairly well after the expedition but towards the end of his life unfortunately he got into alcohol and and died um, i think less happy than you might say hillary did
1: Mm, yeah that's a shame. And for all this complexity of the story we've just spoken about in New Zealand, we are now saying, "I knock the bastard off <laughs> when, when we do things like cut down a large tree in our garden." But, you know people are people that's great. People hold this simple colloquial <laughs> phrase as you know they know that they're quoting <laughs> Sir Ed. that's no, cool the play is um, the Sherpa and the Beekeeper you're going to be able to run it again I guess and and possibly different locales
0: yeah the team is meeting next month to, to get back together now that we've exhaled a bit and talk about touring and touring opportunities um, I'm a fair I'm a novice in this area so um, I'm working with good people Jay and Brooke Baker and of course my actors Cameron Smith and Jericho Nicodemus are both uh, both work in the realm of film and screen and and and, um so we're going to get together and talk about the the practicalities of touring it yeah it'll be exciting um to see where we can take it yeah Mm, hopefully around new zealand and beyond who knows i mean the subject matter is certainly something that the whole world knows about uh yeah it would be wonderful to, to see that happen
1: now as you mentioned the um when we met a few years ago in 2016, we spoke about your um, your science fiction, Michael Crichton um, leaning book, Everest Rising. And um, what is interesting about that is that it's it's about Everest again. You obviously have a a personal fascination with Everest, don't you?
0: Well, first of all, I'd say bazillions of people have fascinations with Everest. Um, obviously. When I had an idea for a science fiction type story involving Everest, I researched it more, and it's the highest mountain in the world, and it fit the um, the plot of this story I wanted to do. So I think my interest is more in mountaineering and um, the world than the world is a pretty big one, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, than Everest, but obviously Everest, there's so many interesting stories about it, and and the drive for people still to try to get there as a bucket list item, and all the junk that's you know been thrown around up there and left there by climbers, not so much in recent times when they're trying to take care of cleaning it up. So I'm not disqualifying your comment that I have a keen interest in Everest, because I certainly do, and I have two major projects involving it. Um, but Everest kind of fell into place in the first book as a key plot point that worked. And the second one, yeah, was just the overall story of Tenzing and Hillary up there. But I think Everest is fascinating. I you know, most people in the world, if you say Everest, uh, it's one of those words that most people will know what it is right away, you know. It's way up there. And same with Hillary and Tenzing as characters. I was trying to match them up to famous people. Once you get after people you know, involved in religion you know you start thinking about dictators then if you go next down the line who do you think about like famous celebrities but worldwide Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay would be you know way up there.
1: Tell us about about um Everest Rising and and what uh what that story was about Sure
0: so uh, Everest Rising is a story about some weird geological phenomena starting to happen below Mount Everest and uh various worldwide authorities, scientific authorities, realize they better get a team over there to try to figure out what it is, because it's, it's rising, um, there's other underground um, manifestations going on, and as it turns out, I guess I can re- reveal the plot at this point, uh, maybe it'll help it drive it to the New York Times bestseller list. Mm-hmm. The Earth is expecting, it's expecting a baby planet um, So the fertility in the Nepalese area of Everest is going crazy. Uh, Plants are growing that normally don't grow there. The earth is getting spongy. Animals are proliferating at a wild rate. Snow leopards are moving in herds. So the team um, of scientists goes over and they're housed at the Everest Vista Hotel. And there is actually a hotel over in that region where you can, it's called the Everest View Hotel. where you can stay the night and look out your window at Mount Everest, which is pretty incredible. So I kind of based my um, story out of that hotel and made it like Jurassic Park, you know, where the buildings are, and out in the wild is all this crazy stuff going on, and ultimately there's this battle on the mountain where one group, the quote-unquote baddies, are there to try to prevent the birth um, because it's ruining their money-making scheme from using the water from near Mount Everest to create synthetic minerals so they they're getting they were getting rich over in Vancouver with that and another group led by the team James Von Camberg and his wife and a team of scientists and some Sherpa are also involved in the story who are trying to prevent the baddies from doing that they don't even know if it's the right thing to do because if the world has a a baby planet is it going to end the world uh, but is it, is it, it's doing it because the earth has been so screwed up by pollution and human-made activities. So I have that controversy going on and uh, of course I can't tell them the amazing ending, Gary, because then yeah, they won't rush out and buy it on Amazon <laughs> <laughs> or popular bookstores in Ragland uh, also, so it's still. No, it's, it's, it was a great thing. It didn't do great business, but it got me out of the gate. It was published by a hybrid publisher in California. And uh, you know you do these things in steps. You do creative projects, and then they slide into the back, and you do your next one, and it, it nudges a little little forward. And mm. so ha- you know, having a play run on this th- same thing, you know, kind of ties in as a thread to the book in a way. And um. yeah, just keep keep moving forward on stuff.
1: Yeah. Mm, that's really quite cool, being able to look at it. Um, from a science fiction perspective, and then a um, pretty much non-fiction yeah. interpretive perspective, yeah. um, it shows how amazing the story of Everest is, and the spirituality of Everest, and the the metaphys- metaphysicality of the idea of the largest mountain in the world.
0: Yeah, the um the. Tibetan name for Everest, Choma Longma, means goddess mother of the universe, or variants of that. I've heard variants of that also, so I've, I use that both in my Everest Rising novel and in the play. Um, but yeah, I mean, over there the mountains are god or gods or godlike. Uh, so there's there's one major mountain in Nepal that um, has never been summited because the um, the people of that region feel that it's very special and very blessed. I'm not sure which one it is, it's not Dalagari. And so mountaineers who climb it are asked never to step to the very top, come within mm. you know, 20 feet, and they, they honor that typically, although who knows what goes on up there. Yeah. One of the funny things about Everest is it's, the very top is the line between China and Nepal. So I, again in the play we show Tenzing on one side of the peak and Hillary on the other. and Hillary runs his finger through the snow and says, "I'm in Nepal. You're in Tibet." Yeah. <laughs> and the Chinese don't really uh, necessarily sanction people coming into their country without a passport and an airport, you know, screening and all, mm. like any country. But there, you can just take a little step with your boots and, yeah. and you're in China and be legally in China. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. At one point, apparently, the Chinese were playing the tunnel through the mountain to create a road or something. I think that was finally and thankfully nixed. Yeah. But <laughs> it's crazy. But yeah, the mountain certainly has a, you know, a spirituality to it. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but the Everest is the tallest mountain measured from sea level, but apparently the tallest mountain from the center of the earth is somewhere else because the earth is not perfectly round and this other mountain that I can't tell you the country or the name is in one of the,
1: I've heard it called K2. No, K2
0: is the second highest mountain in the world, but this is some might even be in South America. The, the earth is bulges out. It's not a perfect sphere, and because this mountain is near the bulge, it gains all these extra thousands of feet from the center of the earth, but not from sea level. If wow,
1: that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, look it up. You yeah. you can look that up. And they they also say the tallest mountain in the world from the crust, of, uh, or the not the crust, but the undersea, I don't know, what, what would that be called? Not the crust, right? Is that the crust? Seafloor. Seafloor is a mountain in Hawaii, I think, one of the volcanoes. It comes up as a sheer form off the flat bottom and it's and of course, Mars has a mountain higher than all of these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It, mixing up the the real world and the geophysical aspects of the world with human nature and the metaphysical—what could be better? Mm. You know, it's just such a rich brew. Mm. It's, it's a lot. It's our life. Yeah.
1: Um what um are you working on some other creative projects at um living out at Raglan?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um a couple different things going on. One of them is I gave Gary a copy of this graphic novel called The Last Voyage of the SS Pangolossian, And it's a story about a um an attempted uh journey to the very wall of the known universe. And I originally wanted to do it as a short film, so I thought I'd do the graphic novel as like a storyboard in case I wanted to do a short film of it. So this is still one of the possibilities I'm queuing up. Um, Another one, since I just did the play and I learned more about plays, is a story about the Hadron Collider, um, which recently, I don't know how many years ago now, they discovered a new particle called the Higgs boson particle and for all you uh physicists and um metaphysical theorists out there you probably know this story but uh they figure that Higgs boson should exist because if it didn't the universe might not exist there's stuff like yeah you know quotes like that going around yeah but this
1: so the hadron collider is a loop which fires particles around at impossible speeds and basically (laughs) clashes them together. Yeah, Yeah, and it's
0: 17 kilometers in a circle apparently. I think that's the size. That's the diameter and it's in France and get this, they were building one in Texas and then it got defunded during the Reagan or Clinton era and so there's this half built collider tunnel under Texas. Huge. I think it was even bigger. But yeah, so this This thing's incredible. I mean, they have electromagnets that start to drive these particles. So, I'm trying to write a play that would bring some clarity to what the layman understands about this stuff because I love it, but I don't understand it. Like, I'm picturing these guys dumping little, you know, vials of particles in at one end (laughs) and then a fan kicking on, you know, or something and pushing them around and hoping they'll hit but of course it's it's nothing like that at all but it's just you know i was picturing you know in the play picture this in the theater you just have some of the curve in the front of you know the collider coming out of both ends of the theater like the rest is just continuing on out into hamilton streets yeah and then you have the guys you you kind of represent the real scientists who brought it to you know to bear to the creation of both the collider and then uh, finding the Higgs boson particle, you can recreate that almost like the Hillary and Tenzing thing. But then again, you bring an imagined future in where the, you start getting weirder particles. Or maybe a particle falls on the floor and melts through like an alien. Or maybe the janitor comes in at night and turns it on and puts a hamburger in. you know. So there's all this possibility. And I, I would certainly respect the science of it because I always try to anchor both my science fiction book and my movie Anchor it in the truth and then play around at the edges of that because you don't want to just go. I mean, I personally don't want to go on a wild goose chase and deliver something that would just be, you know, so wild and Willy Wonka-like that people wouldn't get, you know, the science or the history in there. And that's what I try to do in the Everest play is give them a recreation of the moment. You know, you were there, right? You saw yes. that first moment when you have Tenzing and then it fades into the, our actor. I love that. So, in the if we do a hadron play, we'll recreate some of the first the days. Imagine being there with the scientists when the the Higgs boson appears, and they finally have evidence for this thing. And then in the other two acts, you can start saying, "Let's crank it up to 15 and see what happens," you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And I think in, if I was to do the play, I would never get into science fiction. I would get into theory, but I would never try to take it, you know, so wacky that. It would lose, you know, some of the credibility that I would try to establish in the first act. Um, but certainly, you could do th- you could do some fun things. You could even have some moments where they're imagining. I mean, imagine this. You know, you have the particles going back and forth in the tube during the play, and the scientists are in awe. And Something goes wrong. You, you see an alert, and they say one of the particles has gotten out. And in, in the back of the stage behind the audience, you have a little laser up in the corner going, whoop, 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 you know, fizzing. <laughs> yeah. You know, stuff like that could be really cool because particles exist everywhere. We have particles inside us. Um, I believe my physicist brother George just clarified for me in an email that everyone has Higgs bosons inside them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I said, What would happen if? All the Higgs bosons disappeared all of a sudden. He said, "I think that would be it. We would all disappear, you know, not not just humans, but everything, they they help create mass, apparently." And again, I'm just in I'm just a freshman and beginning to learn about this. I'll do lots of research to bring, you know, anchored in what really happened there. If I end up doing it. Thank you for listening to this
1: episode of WTS Waikatoa. If you liked what you heard, you can follow the show on Facebook and find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Free FM, the Community Access Media Alliance and New Zealand On Air for making this show happen.